Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. Today, we rise again with our January 2012 theme, Redemption, Stories of the Comeback. First up, featured storyteller Al Popwell faces payback when schoolyard intrigues come back to bite in the boardroom. Good morning. I say good morning to you because this is about the time a pimp wakes up and he gets ready to go to work. And uh, at age 12, I was a bona fide pimp. And tonight, that, that story will be what I tell you about. Um, I don't blame myself because today you never blame yourself. You, you always blame somebody else, the media. And um, it was Hollywood's fault that I was a pimp. And I'll tell you why. Because at the age of nine, I saw the coolest thing ever to hit celluloid film. And I still think it's pretty cool. And uh, you guys will all know it, but it kind of goes like this. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all this confusion and excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But you've got to ask yourself one question. Do you feel lucky? <laughs> well, do you punk? <laughs> to a nine-year-old, I mean, I, I hate to say it because I was raised Catholic, but <laughs> I think this would have given Jesus some competition because <laughs> this was just cool. And after all my friends saw this movie, we're out on the playground debating it, right? It's a Model 629, vented rib. Nah, I don't think it was vented. Yes, it was. He had a trigger job on that thing, too. See, in Chicago, this is big news on the playground. I mean, in Idaho, you probably learned this coming out of the womb, but in Chicago, <laughs> this was big, okay? Now, the guy, the guy on the other end of that barrel was a black character actor, and I was raised not to be racist. In fact, if I was racist, I probably wouldn't be here. My father had absolutely no tolerance for it, and one day he took me... Uh, behind the garage after he heard some of my friends utter the n-word and uh, he said do you do that and I says no I never do that and he says look liar ass now when my dad used the word a double s it was because he wanted to use a worse word but he didn't want to do that in front of me so he says open that trash can so I thought he was going to stuff me in that trash can. <laughs> so I open it up. He says, you see what's in there? I said, yeah, some cornflakes, uh, brown paper bag. He says, what color's on that cornflake box? Red, yellow, green. The words are in black. He says, that's right. What does that teach you? Of course, I didn't know. <laughs> and I was afraid to tell him I didn't know, so he told me. He says it's all trash, and color has nothing to do with trash. Remember that as you go through life. So I always did, and my idols growing up truly were Walter Payton, uh, Billy Williams, Ernie Banks. Okay, when Walter Payton signed a football for me, it was like the greatest thing ever. So this character actor we're talking about at the end of the barrel, as the Clint Eastwood movies get more and more popular, 
And guys, you can admit it, because I know you like them too. Um, the guns also got bigger and cooler. So this black character actor, I think his name was Jim, so I'll just call him Jim. He's sneaking up behind Clint in one scene with a shotgun that's like sawed off, and he takes it to a watermelon, you know. Boom, boom, boom. Splatters the watermelon all over the place, looks at Clint Eastwood and says, forensics will have to strain that for the fingerprints. <laughs> so, see, the guys aren't laughing because they've seen these movies a hundred times. <laughs> so Clint looks at him and he says, this is the 44 Automag, and if used correctly, it'll remove the fingerprints. Right, he's always got to have the one-liner. So back on the playground, this is cool, right? You know, we're debating this, you know. Some kid would be exiled if he said anything against Clint, like, you know, I read in National Geographic there's an elephant gun more powerful than the 44. And, what? You're crazy. What, is Clint going to carry an elephant gun around in his pants? You know, so you were, like, exiled, you know. So... The triad of coolness in my nine-year-old life was coming together, because a couple years later what happens is the Kiss Double Live album comes out. <laughs> See? Now we have a demographic here. Because I said album, and if you were too young to go, what's an album? I only have MP3s. I'd be in trouble, right? So that comes out, and of course, you know, three-chord power, progression, rock and roll, guns, Clint Eastwood. We're cool, you know. And then one day, we were sitting in math class, I believe it was, and the teacher says, boys and girls, I'd like to introduce you to our new student from France. Her name is Janet. And from off in the corner, we hear, it's Jeanette. <laughs> well, how many have seen The Grinch Who Stole Christmas where the little frame breaks? when his heart grows three sizes. That's what was happening in seventh grade. Hormones were bursting. You know, look out. And, um, you know, this girl was, was cool. It was like nothing we've ever seen, you know. Uh, she dressed differently. She wore fur, bright colors berets. I mean, we couldn't take it, you know. <laughs> we, we could concentrate on nothing. Every geography con uh, project from then on was the Eiffel Tower, you know. So the odd thing was at recess, nobody could talk to her because, you know, she was either just too hot or too different, right? And when you're young, that's how it works. So as luck would have it, my father took me to see yet another movie called Return of the Pink Panther, okay? Which features Inspector Clouseau, the bumbling, basically, ding-dong. So I'm laughing at the movie, but I notice one thing, and that is that Inspector Clouseau has the ability to attract hot French women. Now, of course, later I learned they're Russian, given French names, you know. <laughs> so in the 11 or 12-year-old mind at the time, how do I put this together, right? If he can do it, I can do it. 
So next recess, I walk up to her, I say hello. She was more than happy to talk to anybody. And I start, you know, conversing with her and learn that, you know, she drinks champagne, smokes French cigarettes, <laughs> likes to shop. Oh, yeah, I like to shop, you know. Um, unfortunately, though, one day she really bursts my ego and she says, you know, that friend of yours, Mike, is cool. So... Hello? Oh. So that kind of that bursts my ego, you know, but okay, whatever. So then in talking to Mike, he's like every other guy in the class, you know, I want to do a project on the Eiffel Tower, yeah, Renault cars, all that kind of thing. And uh, one day, you know, like everybody else, he just can't take it anymore. And he says, man, you know, I've been doing research on this and French women are hot. She is USDA prime. I would do anything to kiss her. So what happens is the nine-year-old mind once again takes a bad warp. And I remember that this character actor, Jim, had played other roles. And one very significant one was as a black militant involved in other industries. And basically a massage parlor. And of course, you know, I understood what was going on there. So one, one day I said to uh, Jeanette, I says, you know, Mike says he'll give you a buck if you kiss him. <laughs> she says, uh, well, I think he's cute, of course. Yeah, that's the worst French accent you'll ever hear, by the way. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, Mike had been doing his, you know, PhD research on what to do if this moment would ever happen. Basically, the Wii magazine under his older brother's mattress... And, um, you know, they had like the forum section in there. We all know Penthouse had the forum. I mean, I don't, I heard it. Uh, but, but things were in there like, you know, I was the only one in the bus station and in walked seven Las Vegas showgirls drunk. What was I to do? You know, and of course at nine years old, you're thinking, oh man, what did he do? You know. <laughs> You know, now you're thinking, who's the 85-year-old woman that can't get a Fabio novel published and is writing this, right? So, so I charged Mike two bucks. <laughs> For those of you playing along, that's 100% profit. <laughs> Tax-free. You know, no, no liability. So, you know, this rolls along for a while, and then as a 12-year-old, I'm having significant problems with it that I would just bet that none of you ever had. And uh, one of them was suspicion, because when every male in the grammar school turned into Kobayashi at lunch to get to recess and could down a hamburger in three milliseconds to get out the door to allegedly play soccer, some suspicion was arousing, right? Plus, I'm buying things, you know, I'm trying to play it cool, but I'm buying things that my dad knew, where's he getting the money? <laughs> so under pressure, I did the next foolish thing, which I thought would send me to hell at the time, and that is I invoked the sacraments. Well, you know, Dad, I had that communion money. <laughs> dad said, listen, man, <laughs> I know your ass didn't buy that bike with no communion money. <laughs> no, Dad, really. 
So dad's on to me and we're playing this cat and mouse game all along, right? Then I run into other problems because kids are now running out of paper and they're raiding their parents' change purses, car seats. They're bringing two bucks and quarters and 50 pennies. You know, I got a bowling ball worth of money and I knew if I got caught with this money, it would be over because my dad would probably kill me, right? So I had to hire a bag man. <laughs> whose name was Bobby, the bag man, and he was happy to get that nickname because his other name was Bobby the Bowling Bull, whose reputation was no one could tackle him or bring him down in football, and it was true. The guy was the round mound of rebound, like Charles Barkley, you know. <laughs> so then I had security problems because this mock soccer game is going on at the end of the field. Right? And if a teacher would walk down there, I had to do something, so I had to have guards. So I had Sammy on security. You know, and we had code words, you know, like, uh, I think the bell's going to ring. That meant the teacher was coming in. We'd break it up. So this goes on, and I'm clearing 40 or 50 bucks a week. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm clearing 40 or 50 a day. Because we had an hour recess, right? That's about 200 bucks a week. So I'm going to the bank on Saturday depositing money. And the old lady's kind of looking at me like, hmm. Anyway, um, again, my dad's like, you know, that record collection seems to be growing. Since when are you into Miles Davis? <laughs> oh, Dad, Miles is cool. He's from Montreux. We learned that from a French exchange student we had. <laughs> Miles ain't from Montreux. He's from... You know, Alton, well, you know, he played there, whatever. So my dad's on to me, and uh, Jeanette's doing her thing. I'm rolling in the cash. And uh, then bad news happens, you know, Jeanette's going back, the exchange thing is over. And, you know, I never kissed her. I want to be upfront and honest right now. I never did. So the teachers, you know, the week before Jeanette's going to go back, says, uh, we'd like to see the boys uh, after school for just a minute. Oh, boy, I thought I had it right. They sit us down and they say, we just want to say how nice all you boys were <laughs> to this foreign exchange student even nicer than the girls. <laughs> Dodged a bullet, right? So Jeanette goes home, and, uh, you know, by this time, everyone is saying things like, hey, Mustafa, where's your woman? And Mustafa was the character actor's name, Jim, when he was the black militant running the House of Ill Repute, right? Big Ed Mustafa. So they're calling me Mustafa, and then their fathers see this, and they're calling me Mustafa, and they, you know, hey, Mustafa, you know. I'm on my English 10 speed, that weighs like three ounces, <laughs> pedaling once, going three miles down the block, you know, expensive bike, right? <laughs> so she leaves, life goes on, I drive a truck for a few years, whatever, and, uh, and I get hired by IBM in my late 20s, and, and all the same time, other things are happening, you know, and Dad's saying, I know your, your wise ass is up to something, or he'd do like combinations, you know. You know, you're going to get your ass in a big old ass sling if your mother finds out. <laughs> and, you know, you didn't dare say, now, Dad, how could you put a sling in? 
so, uh, you know, I work at IBM for a few years, and my dad works there too, but not with me. We're in, we're in different areas. And then suddenly they decide they're going to uh, make me a manager. And they send you to management school, which is basically to make sure you're not totally stupid, right? It's, it's not hard, but they, they don't want you screwing up. And the end unit, or the big graduation, kind of like the preamble for the Constitution when you're in fourth or fifth grade, that I couldn't memorize, but you just saw me do, I know what you're thinking, <laughs> 30 years later, okay? The big graduation thing is they're gonna get mad at you, and they wanna see how you handle an angry customer, you know? And they tell you this, but it's almost worse knowing that it's coming than if you didn't know that it was coming, right? So you're standing in line and guys are walking out of there flustered, you know, what's going on in there? You just don't know, you know? So I walk in for my mock interview or whatever they call it, and I sit down and the guy across the table introduces himself and I introduce myself. And he says, uh, you know, I'm glad you're here. Now this is IBM, very conservative company at the time. He says, I'm glad you're here. I said, well, I'm glad to be here too. Because that piece of shit that you sold us in the back room, I want it out of here right now. And he says, that is the worst performing computer we have ever had in this building. And I mean, he's turning red pound in the desk, but I'm cool, I have the techniques, you know. Now, Mr. Smith, let's try to settle down. I can fly my experts in on the company jet and you know, they give you all this stuff to say. So he says, you know, that's not gonna be good enough. Let me go get my boss. So he walks out, and 10 seconds later, the biggest African-American man I've ever seen walks in the door and says, hello, my name's Ed, Big Ed, Mustafa. <laughs> now, I had a coronary, but it was so quick that I was still staggering, you know? But I was more wondering, what the heck, what is this, you know? And he says, and I want that piece of garbage out of here, just like he said. And I also want to talk to you about the royalties you owe me for using my name to run some pimp operation in seventh grade, which I never saw a dime of. You could get a ball bat right now and hit me five times over the head and I wouldn't be nearly as stunned as I was. And they knew I was stunned. But I, I'm trying to figure it out. How does this figure into this? What is going on? He says, while you sit there and bumble and say nothing and blabber to yourself, I'm going to go get my boss. And in walks daddy. And he looks at me and he says, I told you, I always know what you're doing. And I knew what you were doing. And like John Lennon said, it took me so long to find out, but I found out. Long story short, you know, for the next 10 years of my IBM career, my name was Mustafa. Thank you. Somewhat of a provocateur yourself? 
step up to the new sensation from Story Story Night, dubbed Story Story Late Night, where you hear shameless true stories on a theme, bravely, scandalously told live on stage and without notes. The new program debuts on March 14th with Naked Stories, featuring host Emma Arnold and musician Dan Costello. Story Story Late Nights will be held at the Visual Arts Collective in Garden City, a 21 and over venue. Doors open at 7 p.m., and the late night starts at 8 p.m. Next, we go back to the Story Slam from January with Mike Stefansik, who sees redemption in sibling rivalry. Um, story of redemption. Um, well, my sister kind of comes to mind uh, with this story. Uh, we grew up in Chicago. It was great hearing some stories from Chicago. Uh, if anyone else is from Chicago, they kind of know where these kind of stories come from. Uh, deep family bonds. Um, so I grew up with a younger sister, uh, three years apart, so we're pretty close. Uh, we had a lot of sibling uh, rivalries. You know, we picked on each other a lot. And um, so, it, you know, it was one after another, kind of the cat and mouse kind of game of things. Um, and, you know, it started at a very young age, at the point where, you know, my sister was just able to walk, and we were realizing that maybe we didn't like each other as much as we probably should have. So, um, I remember the, the first, uh, it, it all started when she was on one of those little rocking horses, you know, but it was the spring ones, you know, the kind of spring back and forth, not the old traditional kind. And um, I remember sneaking up behind her and pulling on the tail of that horse and then letting it go and seeing her fly across the room, land on her chin, split it open. Yeah, these were very physical uh, rivalries that we had between each other. Um, And so, you know, that was the beginning of it. Um, She knew that I had done that to her and she wasn't very happy about it. Um, How she got me back, um, it was was really good and I still can, can prove the signs of it. Um, I was going to sit down at the dinner table one day, and she quickly pulled out a pencil and set it down on the chair, right as I was going to sit down. Mind you, she had just sharpened the pencil, too. So it had gone directly into my, actually, it's in my right cheek, and it is still there to this day. So she got me back pretty good. All right, and these, and these continued on back and forth. Uh, the one time where I took a piece of plywood and put it underneath the bed sheets and made the bed real nice, probably the only time I've really made a bed nicely, um, because she always used to love to run in and jump on that bed. And I wasn't there to see it, but my dad was, and that even made it better when he congratulated me on how great it was to see her face when she landed on that bed, and it was not as soft as she had predicted it to be. Um, so these things went on and on, you know, freezing her shoes, uh, putting ice in each other's bed. That's not really a fun thing to get into a a bed on a cold night and it's already cold and wet for you. Um, so we would do these things back and forth to each other. And, um, so this instance that kind of led to this actually moment of redemption for my sister, um, happened in our basement growing up in Chicago, Uh, We have a lot of basements. I haven't actually been in a basement since I've been here in Idaho. I'm not sure if you guys know what they're like, but they're very, they're cement, they're deep into the ground, they're really cold, they're great for summer days. Um, Growing up in the Midwest, it was hot and it was was muggy and humid, so we'd go and hang out in the basement a lot. 
Um, and on this, uh, this summer day, um, I was in the basement, you know, playing with my, my Legos and really enjoying them. And my sister came and stole the, uh, you know, the key character in the scene that I was creating in my Legos. So I proceeded to chase her through the basement. Um, well, in these basements, um, over time, they expand and contract, forming cracks in the, the basement floor. Um, it was the summertime, and as most kids in the summertime, we, we obviously don't wear shoes. Um, one other thing about myself is I didn't really like uh, cutting my toenails and things like that. So as I was chasing my sister through the basement, one of those you know, um, perfectly placed cracks um, caught onto my right big toenail, and it ripped it out <laughs> as I followed through. I understand now why it is a torture method. It is very painful to have a toenail ripped out. Um, so I was screaming in pain, hoping that my mother would come down and discipline my sister um, to no avail, uh, nowhere to be seen. Um, and also at this time, I was uh, beginning to build confidence in myself. And you know, having this injury, um, being weak towards my sister, the one thing I felt that I could do was you know, give myself first aid. So I was for sure that I could handle this, even though I was in immense pain. So I had seen my mom do this many times before on all my scrapes and bruises. I uh, put the Band-Aid on, the Neosporin, and things like that. So I proceeded to do that, and I thought I had done a pretty good job. I'd have to change my socks a couple times a day for the next week, because it was still bleeding and things like that. But I worked through it, and I had got, gotten done. Uh, and so a week later, about a week or so had passed, and we were back down in the basement uh, enjoying the coolness of it and escaping the summer heat. Uh, we weren't really able to go to the pool by ourselves at that age and uh, things like that. So um, I was, my buddy Rich was down in the basement with us. We were throwing a Frisbee around and things like that. Um, and my sister came down. She came, comes down the stairs, and my buddy Rich is on the other side going to catch the Frisbee that I'm just throwing at him, and she grabs it out of his hands, and thinking that she's really cool, she throws it. And somebody who doesn't throw a Frisbee very well, usually what happens is they, they throw it like a baseball, and you know, it kind of goes end over, or not end over end, but it spins around and hits the ground, and then it kind of does this like parabolic turn. Well, it had come around and I was standing on the other side, and it comes screaming around there, and it hits my toe. Now, it wasn't going very fast or very hard or anything like that, but it, it hit my toe just right, right where that toenail used to be. And um, I screamed out in excruciating pain, worse than actually ripping it off. This was, I was down on the ground, and I was crying and very embarrassed, because at this age, I, I was not wanting anybody to see me cry, especially one of my best friends. Um, and my mom had heard this, these cries that were very familiar to her. Thus, she came downstairs to find out what was going on with me and um, proceeded to see that my sock was bloody and was like, what, did, what happened? What did you do? And I was like, it was Allison. She did it. She threw the Frisbee at my toe. She's like, there's no way that Frisbee made your toe bleed. All right? And she's like, no, really, what happened? And she made me take my sock off, and she's like, oh, my gosh. Michael, how long ago did this happen? What happened? A week and a half ago, and I was still in pain, kind of writhing in pain. She's like, we're going to the hospital right away. And so we head to the hospital, um, x-rays, doctor takes a look at it and stuff like that. We get it all back, and um, my toe has been infected, obviously, because I wasn't the medical professional I thought I was. <laughs> and uh, 
it had gotten into the bone of my toe, and it was becoming gangrenous. And immediately after that, I had gone into surgery, and they were going to take part of my bone off, and potentially take my toe or my foot, depending on how much had been infected in there. So, my sister, in a roundabout way, totally redeemed herself and saved my foot. And I'm very thankful for that, and I'm still working on trying to redeem myself for all the things that I have done to her. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by fearless leaders Jessica Holmes, that's me, and Anna Dimitriadis, as well as story seeker Zach Borman and studio guides Elizabeth McKetta and Kate Riley. Theme song music and podcast production are by the redemption song Dan Costello. Hear more at hearcostello.com. Our partners include Boise State Public Radio and Neighborhood All-Stars. A big thanks goes out to our story think tank, volunteer coordinator Kylie Krill, and fabulous volunteers. Join us on the podcast next week for another shot at redemption. Learn more at storystorynight.com.